Hi, this is Saqib Rahman with the Orthoclips podcast series. And today I am with Dr. Mara Schenker. She's an associate professor of orthopedics, chief of orthopedics at Grady Memorial Hospital and uh, the director of orthopedic trauma at Emory School of Medicine in Atlanta. And she's also a clinical informatist um, with Epic over there. A lot of titles. Um, we're The title of our episode uh, today is going to be Social Determinants of Health in Orthopedic Trauma Patients. Uh, welcome, Dr. Schenker. Thanks for having me. So uh, it's a topic of interest uh, of mine, um, certainly in my practice. Um, you know, our practice is, it's a level one trauma center, but we're also serve as a community hospital as well. We're right in the middle, you know, right across the street from um, row homes in a very densely populated area of Philadelphia. So this is something that uh, has been of interest of mine. And I know that uh, it's an interest of yours. So I guess I wanted to start off asking how you got interested in this topic. Was there a particular case or maybe a series of events or something else? So I really got interested in this um, probably shortly after I started at Grady, and um, some of it is the population that Grady serves for trauma in particular, and that we capture sort of all of Atlanta trauma. And so that's, you know, high-speed motor vehicle collisions in some of the, the wealthier uh, parts of, of Atlanta, um, but then also we have a very large urban um, gun violence uh, population. And so I was seeing, you know, patients from all parts of Atlanta. And um, I got interested in this because some, one of my main interests is in cost containment uh, in trauma and in looking at various um, things that impact um, care. So outcomes, quality um, and cost after trauma. One thing that kept coming up over and over again is social determinants of health. And it's come up uh, in a lot of medical specialties. And I did a lot of reading early on um, with some of the National Academy of Medicine uh, publications uh, related to social determinants of health and the impact of social determinants of health. And I realized that there was really nothing in trauma and trauma is the third costliest uh, medical condition um, overall. And one, when I looked at that, I was like, this is, you know, people look at it as almost like it's not, uh, not preventable that cost the trauma is just a costly um, condition. But when you start to dig deep and look at um, impact of social determinants of health and housing instability and financial insecurity and um, you know, health literacy concerns and not being able to follow some instructions to be able to come back to clinics. So people come back to the emergency department and you start down this rabbit hole, realizing how, care coordination after trauma is a massive problem. And one big thing that leads to that is social determinants of health. And I realized that in my patient population, I wasn't asking the right, right questions um, to be able to help people in the way that I wanted to. Okay, interesting. Um, so what would you say are some of the surprising facts about uh, social determinants of health and orthopedic trauma patients that that we and our listeners should know and why are they important? So one of the surprising things that I learned was that um, one, one thing that can independently predict um, poor outcomes is instability of a phone number. And so we don't always ask uh, patients, but if your phone number's changed within the last uh, 12 months, um, that that alone can be an independent predictor. Um, zip code, and there's a lot of studies that have looked at geomapping. Um, so something called the Distressed Communities Index, which is a freely available uh, zip code-based um, uh, marker of um, uh, 
uh, economic uh, in instability in particular zip codes, um, that also um, is highly predictive. And so those were two of the main things, but we collect a whole battery um, of assessments uh, for social terms of health in our patient population. So that's really interesting. So just to follow up to that. So when you say, you know, someone's phone number is keep, keeps changing, I guess that really intuitively makes sense to me now um, as being, I guess, would you say that is a risk factor for something in particular, you said economic instability, but did you correlate that or learn that is that correlated with something more specific? Um, I'm thinking if I'm thinking in economic instability, do you, I mean, is that something you can just determine by asking what their annual income is? What, what else does getting their phone number tell you? And how does that, what does that, what does that tell me about what I need to do for my patients? So uh, we started to look at that. And one of the questions that we asked very early on um, in our social terms of health battery was, you know, how much, and we asked a range, we said, how much money do you make a year and how much money do you have in the bank? And I, I realized that, that I don't think people actually understood the question. So you might like, you would ask the question, like, how much money do you make? And they'd say, I make $500 a month. And then you would say, how much money do I have in the bank? And they'd say like, a million dollars or something along those lines. So there was no correlation at all between those two. So I realized that those two questions actually were not uh, any good um, in uh, probably health literacy related. And so the question at, um, do you have a stable phone number is something that, that people can identify with. And so there's a lot of disposable phones. There's a lot of, and this it's more, I think it's more of a, a symptom of the overlying, you know, issue, which is there's financial insecurity there. And if you can't pay for your phone bill um, on a on a monthly basis, then you lose your phone. And so then you get a new phone number the next time that you can afford a phone. And so if your number has changed, it's probably an overall symptom of your overall financial insecurity. Um, the question specific to finances, I think there's probably a huge health literacy and overall literacy component to it. So it was just those, those, those questions weren't very telling for us um, in the end. That's interesting. And, you know, one thing I can just to add on to that, one thing I certainly see as a practical issue um, is, uh, you know, you're, let's say you have, as a surgeon, at least you have patients that um, need to come in for same day surgery. <laughs> and I get these calls the day before that, um, you know, we can't reach your patient. And you're usually not surprised um, to some extent, if you know the patient well, and they've either, you know, either missed some appointments or they've been hard to reach in the past. And now, you know, you're trying to get them to come in for surgery. So the patients who have instability with their phone number, um, I think, you know, you could say fall through the cracks. And I, I see that, um, you know, like just a concrete example, they can't reach them when they need to come in for, tell them what time to come up in for surgery. And then sometimes they'll show up that morning. Um, or not, but it's, uh, that's, that's a surprising fact. I didn't really correlate, but now that I think of it, it makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. And I mean, it makes sense for follow-up too. So that actually is probably our biggest issue is, is that we, when somebody's trying to come back for their second week follow-up to get their sutures out, um, 
sometimes we can't find them. And then, and then you can't. And so then they end up coming to the emergency department four weeks later with overgrown sutures. Um, exactly. And to, to me, that's a, a, an issue with care coordination. Like we need to be recognizing the patients may be homeless or that they may not have a working phone number um, and help them in advance and say, okay, maybe there are some like mobile health services that we can send to their house so they don't have to come to the emergency department in four weeks so that we can find them or that there's, there's a lot of, of social and uh, community um, uh, resources that are available. We're just really bad as clinicians with, and it's not, it's not to our own fault. It's just because of timing. Like we, I don't have a lot of time to ask these questions, um, it, but it's, it's lack of identification of what the actual problem is. It's not that they don't want to come back. It's that they just don't have the resources and don't know how to navigate the complex systems. And so we could do better. Um, and there are existing mechanisms in the community that I keep learning about. Um, like we have a van that's a mobile integrated health van that you can, um, send that can actually go to a patient's house. Um, I didn't know about it. It's something that's sponsored by our hospital. Um, but after I ended up down this, this rabbit hole, I realized, Hey, that actually could be very useful for our patient population. I just need to figure out how to identify who the patients are, who could actually use that service. Yeah. I mean, so that's something I'd thought about also, you know, if there's a role for partnering, um, with uh, those who are, you know, in the field, maybe visiting patient homes and some, a lot of health systems that work in areas where social determinants, determinants of health are a problem. Uh, you, like you said, you may find out that someone on the other side of the uh, hospital university is actually doing that. I, I mean, I guess as a, to sort of reach out to our, the your average clinician out there um, who sees a, you know, mixed population and maybe to our residents, how do we best assess social determinants of health in our patients, in our regular practice. I mean, we're, you know, we're busy, we're seeing patients, we're, 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 we're talking to them in, 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 in our clinics. What are the good questions we can ask? Are there short surveys or are there specific things we can ask when we're interviewing a patient or that we should pull from the medical records to assess, um, to assess those things in our patients? Um, yes, that's a great question. And we're in the process of trying to tease out what that looks like. So if you look at medical frailty as a, um, as a comparison to this, and so looking at medical risk, so I'm going to consider the social determinants of health, a social risk component, but medical risk, we've got a whole bunch of different ways we can assess that. So Charleston comorbidity index, we can use a bunch of published frailty scores that are all relatively simple and highly predictive. Um, within social determinants of health, there are so many different things you can assess, um, financial instability, um, community safety, like is, or do you feel safe walking to the, to the bus? Um, the health literacy, uh, depression screening, PTSD screening, uh, all of this plays into it. And there's validative measures for all of it. The problem is when you put them together in a composite form, it takes forever to ask the questions. And so this is one thing that we're trying to do right now is to try to narrow down uh, what is the most predictive um, of various markers. So using the emergency room for follow-up, for example, as opposed to coming to clinic for follow-up, we're looking at trying to narrow down um, exactly which questions uh, predict that. Um, so stay tuned. Um, yes, there are lots of different ways to assess those sort of determinants of health. The problem is we don't, the timing wise and implementing in a real time clinic is, uh, 
is very difficult. Um, but ideally, I would have this set up such that these questions are embedded in the electronic uh, medical record um, and can be asked by social workers and that can then point to resources that already exist within the system. And so that's that's the tricky part. You can ask the questions, but then what do you do about the answers? And I've spent the last six years trying to connect to various resources in the community or uh, in our hospital uh, to try to connect those dots so that we can actually help patients. So I guess maybe you partially answered my next question, which was, um, I was thinking, how can orthopedic surgeons, you know, once you have that information, how do you, you know, how can the average orthopedic surgeon address some of the problems, maybe if you don't have all the answers, that's fine. But is there an example you can give maybe, you know, so-called low hanging fruit or something that the, you know, the orthopedic surgeon in average clinical visit can do to address some of these problems that, that impact the health of our patients. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, if I know that a patient, um, has issues with transportation, getting into the hospital, or like you said, like a phone number or, um, you know, something else that, you know, their ability, you know, too many stairs in their house. I mean, there's a lot of things that, you know, I, a lot of patients who live in walk-ups and uh, um, there's so many little things that you don't really know until you ask. And then, but then like, what do you do about it? Yeah. So I think the first thing that's easy for, you know, me to say is that we, I tried to remove judgment from the situation. And so it's easy to blame the patient um, when they have these difficulties and life circumstances. And, you know, that's, that is probably initiative number one is to, to take the, the judgment piece out of it. And then after that, like I have one particularly amazing resource in my hospital and she's the director of population health for the hospital. So when I, like I had a woman, for example, a couple of months ago who came in, who had a um, transgender child um, and she had a infected, um, she infected, she had a diabetic foot ulcer um, that was very infected, needed to be admitted to the hospital. She absolutely refused admission to the hospital because she said that. Um, she said that she wasn't going to be able to care for her child and that there weren't a lot of resources for her child for childcare. And, um, I, rather than dismissing her or saying, well, if she doesn't want help, I can't help her. Uh, I went to my resource, um, who's the director of population health for the hospital. And I said, Hey, um, what do you have? Like, do you have something that can help this woman? Uh, she really wants medical care, but she can't because of her social circumstances. And she and her um, director uh, of housing uh, for the hospital, uh, the two of them together came up with a plan uh, for the, the son. And they were able to allow her the ability to take medical care of herself, um, which then potentially prevented future issues. Like, well, what happens a month from now when her, uh, current, uh, situation turns into sepsis and an extreme situation where now she's forced to be admitted to the hospital because she's so sick and now what, what happens to her child? And so we were able to step ahead of that by involving um, the people who had the resources and they were able to coordinate all of that. And so my two recommendations would be to one, um, do your best to try to not blame the patient um, for these social circumstances. And number two, find a partner, whether it be in social health, social work or um, population health um, who have these resources that are available and somebody who's on speed dial for you to be able to help you. 
It's a great example. It always helps um, to kind of uh, use a story to, to illustrate a point. I think that was a really good one. And, you know, just this whole topic, just to put it in context, um, maybe for those who haven't thought of this before, I mean, imagine, you know, you spend all your time trying to address the medical aspects, right? Like I want to get this reduction as perfect as possible. I want to make sure this patient doesn't get infected. The patient has an infection. I want to make sure we have, you know, the appropriate antibiotics that we're, you're doing all the stuff you're taught to do. And then a patient does poorly because they don't have childcare or because, you know, they have too, they have too many stairs in their house and they, they, they can't get out. Um, or you say, well, you know, just be non-weight bearing and, uh, it's impossible. <laughs> they don't have the support system to be able to navigate even to get to their bathroom. Uh, you say, well, why don't you use a wheelchair? And they're like, how's not big enough for a wheelchair. So you, you do all these things to address, um, what you think are the main issues that are going to determine their outcome. And then their outcome really is determined by something else altogether. Um, that's, I think that's why this it makes this an important topic. Um, I guess to finish up, I'll, I'll just ask what changes to healthcare policy um, or maybe just health system priorities or even practice management do you foresee? Um, you know, kind of as it pertains to assessment and intervention for, for these problems. Um, anything you're involved in or you see happening? Yeah, so I think that we need to reevaluate how trauma care is delivered. And so imagine if you are somebody who is homeless, who lives X number of miles from a hospital, who has an open tibia fracture, and you need a free flap, and you needed a vascular repair. Um, to try to coordinate everything. So we're talking just even within the medical side of things. So coordinate a visit to me, coordinate a visit to plastic surgery, coordinate a visit to vascular surgery, to trauma surgery. So that's four visits right there just alone. That's assuming they don't have other injuries. So trying to coordinate that alongside, well, this patient was just discharged from the hospital and, oh, we probably didn't ask the question of, of whether they, we may not have asked the question of what their housing situation was like. Oh, well, they're homeless. Oh, well. So then that adds a whole new layer to it. So I think in an ideal world, we would be able to identify the at-risk patients um, from the very beginning. We need to treat it just like you mentioned with the um, with the reduction. We spend so much time trying to to get an abs, you know, exactly what we've learned in in AO technique to get our reduction and our stability, and it it's perfect. Um, but then now, what's the next step? And I truly think assessment and mitigation of some of these social risk factors and med medical risk factors like diabetes and and medical disease that is often you know in parallel, not well managed. Um, but that is just as much of a factor in the outcome of these patients. And so I think number one is asking the right questions. And then number two is being able to actually do something about it and plug them into the resources that they need and treat it as a, you know, just as much of a, an integral component to their outcome as, as the reduction and stability is. Yes. Agreed. Um, so I, I think that, uh, I think that kind of wraps it up for time. Um, and I'm glad we uh, got to talk about this again. I, it's a really important topic. Uh, we don't know much about it. I'm glad to see that uh, somehow you're finding time in your super busy practice to investigate this. And um, I think I and our listeners are looking forward to hearing more about what you find, uh, especially what, you know, 
what the busy clinicians can do to incorporate in their uh, patient encounters uh, and in their practices to, ad- to address this. And I think if anything, just raising a- attention to the issue um, is an important start. So I want to thank you. I've been uh, with uh, Dr. Mara Schenker again from Grady Memorial Hospital. Mara, thank you very much for taking the time. Thanks for having me.